0: 20th century writer and philosopher by the name of Albert Camus articulated a philosophy of life that was called absurdism. He articulated this in a number of books that he wrote in the 1950s late 1940s early 1950s and Camus idea was pretty simple his idea was essentially this human beings are caught in a constant attempt to derive meaning from a meaningless world And Camus was uncompromising in his position on this. He argued that all of our plans and all of our dreams are, for the most part, hopeless and in vain. And he popularized a phrase that he called existential revolt. Now, it's not important that you know that, but I want you to listen to how he describes existential revolt. He says, Revolt is a constant confrontation between man and his own obscurity. It is certainty of a crushing fate. Now, that's a happy thought to start uh, the morning off with, isn't it? Welcome to City Church this morning. Everything you're thinking and dreaming is meaningless. How much peace does the idea of a crushing fate and the meaningless of your life bring to your soul? Probably not much, but the irony is that in 1957, Camus won, get this, the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature and for those ideas that he articulated in his literature. For those of you who are new to City Church, we've been in a series of sermons from a passage in the book of Philippians, and we've called this series Letting Go of Anxiety. And what we're wanting to learn to experience is one of the dominant emotions of a follower of Christ, or at least one that should be a dominant emotion of a follower of Christ, and that is peace. And we want to learn to experience peace by letting go of the things that cause us Anxiety. So what does Albert Camus and the philosophy of of absurdism have to do with letting go of anxiety? Well, I think that most of us believe that our anxieties are all caused simply by immediate circumstances. And look, often that's true, right? I mean, you're waiting on a phone call perhaps this morning to tell you the results of an important test that you're anxious about. That's pretty immediate. I get that. Some of you are anxious about getting a job. That's a pretty immediate concern. I, I get that. Some of you are anxious about whether the pastor is going to go long this morning. I get that. <laughs> Often, though, I think we overlook the fact that the cause of our anxiety may well be an idea system, a way of looking at life, a philosophy that we've absorbed from our culture and internalized without ever even really being aware of it. It's almost like a virus that's operating undetected in the background of your mind, like a a computer virus. And it's doing harmful things that you don't even know that it's doing. I think that's what we're going to see this morning in the passage that we're going to look at. Again, back in chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, if you would turn in your Bibles back there, this is the passage that we've centered this series around, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And in this passage, um, if you've been with us, you know this passage pretty well. We've read it every week of this series. The Apostle Paul is writing. He's writing to some dear friends, to a church that he had planted, and he's writing to them about anxiety. And he's writing to them about how to experience peace. And I want to read the passage again, verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4. He He says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, and of course, sisters too, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you know already that we focused most of our attention in this series on this list of words that the Apostle Paul gives us in verse 8. And we said that each one of these words is significant. Each of these words matter. Each of them contributes in some way to a sense of peace rather than anxiety. And so far, we've looked at the words true and noble and right and pure. Last week, we talked about the word lovely. And today, we're going to look at the next word. Paul says here in verse 8 that if you want to let go of anxiety and experience the peace of Christ, think about whatever is admirable. Now, I said last week, you might remember this, that the word last week was a word that was only used in that one place in all of the New Testament. And just like that, just like last week's word, the word that's translated admirable here only appears this one time in the New Testament. So it's a rare word. It's the Greek word euphemos, and it's the word from which we get the English word euphemism. Euphemos has been translated by the different versions of the Bible in a number of ways, but they're really pretty similar. They're all in a pretty tight uh, semantic range, meaning that, you know, all of the translations of this word, as I said, I mean, they're all, they're all really uh, very, very similar to one another. The NIV translates this word, euphemos, it translates it, as you can see, as admirable. That's the version I'm using, the NIV. Other versions translate this word commendable, good repute, of good report. I mean, you get it. That's, that's what euphemas means. It's something that's admirable, something that's commendable. Maybe it's someone that has a good reputation. Now, it's, it's here at the very mention of this word that I think we begin to, to uncover how deeply we have been influenced by a very powerful idea, and namely, the idea, the philosophy of absurdism. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk this morning for a while about that philosophy of absurdism, and I'm going to talk about how powerful it is, and I'm going to talk about how it causes anxiety. So it's going to feel for a long time this morning. Uh, I shouldn't say a long time. It's going to feel for a little while this morning uh, that, I'm, that I'm talking about that philosophy more than I'm talking about anxiety. But I promise you that in the end, it's all going to come together. And here's how I want to structure uh, the rest of my comments this morning. I want to talk about the power of an idea, specifically the idea of absurdism. I want to talk about the effect of an idea the idea of absurdism. And then I I want to talk finally about the cure for an idea. So the power, the effect, and the cure for this idea of absurdism. And, of course, let's start with the power of an idea. And I guess the question that some of you may be asking yourselves even right now is why do I say that this word euphemas or admirable or commendable in verse 8 Why do I say that it uncovers how deeply we have been influenced by the philosophy of absurdism? Well, here's why. The minute that you introduce the word admirable or euphemous, you bump up against, as it turns out, one of the dirty little secrets of the philosophy of absurdism, that it makes you deeply cynical. Absurdism makes you deeply cynical. Do you know what I mean by cynical? Uh, Here's a definition. Cynicism is the suspicion that people are motivated purely out of self-interest. That's what cynicism is. It's the suspicion that everybody is motivated purely out of self-interest. Now, by definition, that kind of thinking, that kind of cynical thinking, is exactly the opposite of thinking about whatever is admirable. Because things that are admirable, things that are commendable, are things that are done largely selflessly. And I say largely selflessly because none of us are completely selfless. We're all sinners. But largely things that are admirable are done out of selflessness. They involve sacrifice at my own expense. Uh, Things that are admirable include like a commitment to a cause or to people when it would be easier to break my commitment. That's admirable. Um, Heroism that runs into danger or trouble for the sake of other people That's admirable. That's commendable But you see all of that is the opposite of cynicism Cynicism says nobody does anything out of selflessness It's all out of self-interest So you can't be cynical and think about things that are admirable all at the same time Now whether you realize it or not We live in an extremely cynical culture. And you have likely absorbed a great deal of that cynicism. I certainly have. I know that to be true. Because cynicism is the air we breathe as a culture. It's the water we drink as a culture. Do I even need to mention some of the things that we're cynical about? Like politicians. They're all in it for themselves. That's what we say. They're all in it for themselves and and for the power, right, and the money. We're cynical about politics. Athletes, they're all on steroids, and they're only in it for the money. And pastors, they're all on steroids, and they're only in it for the money. No, they're all hypocrites, right? We're cynical about religion. It's the opiate of the masses. We're cynical about the media. They produce fake news, and on and on and on it goes. You have absorbed this cynicism. You can't help it. However long you have been alive, you have breathed the air of cynicism for 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year, times however many years you've been alive. You're cynical. Cynicism is a part of who you are now. And you may have heard me say this before. I've said it a number of times throughout the years, but... I've even said it in this series, I think in the first week of the series. I said that the primary form that spiritual warfare takes is in the idea systems that dominate our culture that we've absorbed without even knowing it. These idea systems shape the way that we see and we respond to the world. And those idea systems are very, very powerful. Now, I can imagine that some of you are dubious about this. You're you're not convinced that idea systems can be that powerful. You're not at all convinced uh, that you're affected by those idea systems very much. And you probably think it's absurd that I'm saying that you've been influenced by absurdism in some way. But you have. Albert Camus says life is absurd. Back in the 1940s, 1950s, wins a Nobel Peace Prize for literature in 1957. All right. I want to show you how powerful an idea can be. This past week uh, marked the 20th anniversary of the final episode of one of the most popular television shows in American history. Anybody know what show? Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Yeah, March 14th, or excuse me, May 14th, 1998. Anyone here a fan of Seinfeld back in the day? Anyone like anybody here maybe a Seinfeld? Fan of Seinfeld now, you see the reruns, you dig it, all right. Um, the show, Seinfeld, it, it was absolutely hysterical. Personally, my favorite characters were George Costanza, and then later on, Elaine's on again, off again, boyfriend by the name of Putty. But what was so amazing about Seinfeld is that it was so funny and so popular. And yet, if you remember, the plots of the story were built around daily Minutia. Stuff like standing in line at a soup restaurant or the size of George Costanza's wallet or having breakfast at a diner. None of that seems very profound, very important. It all seems like minutia. And it was. Does anyone remember the famous line regarding what the show was about? Anybody remember? It was a show about nothing. Yeah. Like, there was no message. There was no meaning to it, no sentimentality or tenderness that can be so common in television sitcoms. In fact, the producers of the show kept to a very strict policy of what they called no hugging and no learning for the characters. Now, let me ask you something. Is any of that ringing a bell for you? Does any of that sound like an idea, a philosophy, that you've heard about lately? Like a show about nothing? built around meaningless trivia, a show in which there's no hugging, no learning. Any of that sound like a philosophy that you've heard of? Just do this for me. Just pretend like you're in up with me. All right? Yes. It's Albert Camus' idea of absurdism, 40 years after he wrote about it. And remember... And by the way, that turned into a television show. That idea of Albert Camus turned into a television show that's, that was and still is one of the most popular shows in American history. And remember when I said a few minutes ago that one of the dirty little secrets of absurdism is that it makes people cynical. Remember I said that? Well, there was a deep, often very hysterical, uh, but deep cynicism that permeated the Seinfeld show. And, of course, that makes sense. I mean, if there's no transcendent universal meaning to human life, then why would people do anything unselfish and sacrificial? There wouldn't be any real point to that. And so I wanted to show you, just I wanted to, to convince you, I wanted to show you a little clip here from the Seinfeld show that I think demonstrates this deep cynicism in the show and a deep cynicism in our culture, by the way. But let's just watch this little Clip from the show, Seinfeld. Now, again, it's, it's really funny. Great writing, great acting, but deeply cynical. George can't possibly believe that Elaine might just buy him a cup of coffee to be kind, to be nice, to be generous. Why? Why? Why can't he believe that? Because she's got to be acting out of self-interest. Cynicism. You see, here's all I'm trying to prove. I'm trying to prove the power of an idea that you have been deeply influenced by. An idea that was developed and articulated in the 1950s, popularized in the late 1990s, and alive and well in 2018. And no one would suspect that it's based on a sinister idea system because it's so funny. The show. And... Sinister and spiritual warfare, those things aren't funny, right? Oh, but they can be. Perhaps it's an uncannily genius way of creating hopelessness in a society. That's why I say that the power of ideas, that the main form of spiritual warfare in our culture are the ideas that we've absorbed that we don't even know that we've absorbed. The Seinfeld Show was responsible for popularizing this very po- uh, powerful postmodern idea of absurdism and its uh, attendant cynicism into american culture now that's the that's the power of an idea started a long time ago and today it is still very much alive and present and it's alive and present in you so that's the power of an idea let's talk about the effect of an idea the effect of absurdism in our culture. The effect is very simply deep and profound anxiety. Now let's think through why absurdism creates a profound anxiety. Well, three reasons. First, absurdism says, you know, that there's no absolute meaning in the world. And so without any ultimate transcendent meaning in the world, there's no value in doing anything that is euphemous admirable, commendable. Like there's no value in it. because if, this is, if we only have the here and now, what I do, what I don't do has no consequences. There's no meaning to any of it. So why do something that is admirable? That's one of the reasons. Here's the second reason. Without an ultimate transcendent God in the world, there's no way to even define what is admirable. In fact, it's not even possible to say that someone should be admirable. Because who are you to define what is admirable? You may say, well, obviously, things like self-sacrifice and courage, those are admirable things. On the other hand, I may say, that guy who broke into your safe, he had some killer skills. I really admire his skills. Who are you to judge what is admirable and what isn't in a world in which there is no ultimate, transcendent God who gives the world meaning? And then finally, Without an ultimate transcendent God, every man, every woman is out for himself or herself only, which means that you should be anxious, very anxious, because if everyone is motivated only out of self-interest, you better not ever trust anyone. You better make sure that you get ahead of everyone else. Never show any weakness. Get while the getting is good because life is a zero-sum game, and you either kill or get killed, crush or be crushed, destroy or get destroyed. At Thanksgiving, you better believe I'm eating the last piece of pie because giving it to you doesn't help my chances of survival at all. If I find a wallet on the street, you better believe in this world, in this worldview I'm keeping it I'm charging up your credit cards. I'm keeping whatever cash I find because who's to say that giving it back would be a good thing to do? I'm under no moral obligation in an absurd world to do so. And friendships, forget them. Like George Costanza said a moment ago, everyone's out to stick it to you. There's no one that you can confide in, no one you could count on to have your back, no one who will help you when you're down. That's an incredibly lonely way to live. And it's also a very deeply anxiety producing way to live as well. You can't trust anyone, you can't trust anything. And so you better be anxious. You see, absurdism and the cynicism that comes with it creates an enormous amount of anxiety in our lives. Now, I want to illustrate this again. I want to go back to the Seinfeld show one more time. Uh, Anybody remember the finale of the Seinfeld show? Anybody remember it? Raise your hands. Yeah? Okay, good. Um, Do you remember how disappointed people were uh, with the finale? Um, Spoiler alert. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the finale of the show here. And I'm not going to feel bad about it because it's been 20 years since the finale aired. And like if you haven't seen it yet, uh, it's your problem. Um, I don't have time to go over the whole finale, but, but let me just kind of summarize it for you. If you recall, Jerry and the whole crew land in this small town in uh, Latham, Massachusetts. And they see a guy getting carjacked by another guy with a gun. And they do nothing. Like they don't try to help. They don't do anything. In fact, all they do is they crack jokes about the size of the guy who's being attacked. Well, they get thrown in jail for not obeying a new law that the town had called the Good Samaritan Law. And the Good Samaritan Law said that you had a responsibility to help someone out in a situation like that. And so they're tried, and the trial is really very funny, and they're convicted. Now, here's what the judge said, and the way I'm going to read it isn't going to sound very funny, I promise, because I'm not that funny, but, but uh, it was very funny in the show, okay? But it sounds very serious, because it is. Listen to it. Here's what the judge said when he convicted them. He said, I do not know how or under what circumstances the four of you found each other, but your callous indifference and utter disregard for everything that is good and decent has rocked the very foundation upon which our society is built. Now they're mocking, the show was mocking, but callous indifference and utter disregard for everything good and decent. What is that? That's absurdism played out in a TV show. Life is absurd, which makes them cynical. Nothing is admirable in the world. Not even helping someone out who is being robbed at gunpoint. It's all meaningless. And so they ignore it, and they crack jokes about it, just like cynical people would. And after the sentencing, they're thrown in jail. And... While they're waiting to be taken to prison, they're all sitting in this jail cell doing the most absurd things. Kramer's trying to get water out of one of his ears. Elaine is talking about uh, how her one call is the king of last phone calls. And then Jerry and George are talking about the buttons on George's shirts. There's no remorse. There's no learning. There's no contemplating what caused them to get into this predicament. Why? Why? Because life is absurd. And it has no meaning. Only in a world in which there's meaning and purpose are there things like remorse and learning. Now, people hated the ending of the show. I mean, people hated the ending of the show. And do you know why? you know why? Because the ending of the show demonstrated the logical conclusion of the philosophy of absurdism. Like it stuck with that philosophy. Everybody wanted, you know, a happy, sentimental, uh, uh, meaningful ending. But that's not. That's not Seinfeld's world. That's a world in which there is transcendent meaning. But that wasn't Seinfeld's world. Seinfeld's world was one that said life is absurd. And it was deeply cynical. And so the ending, you got to give them credit. They stuck with their philosophy all the way to the end, and people found it so unsatisfying. And may I suggest even anxiety-producing? Because that's what a life without meaning is. Meaningless and anxiety-producing. That's the effect of absurdism. Now, finally, I just want to end quickly by talking about the cure for an idea, the cure for absurdism. And very simply, what Paul is telling us in verse 8 is that the cure for absurdism is the gospel. What Paul says here in verse 8, when he says, when he says think about whatever is admirable, what he's doing is he's integrating the implications of the gospel into the circumstances of life that create anxiety. And he's arguing that the selflessness of Christ refutes the hopelessness of absurdism and cynicism. He's arguing that in Christ's life and in his death, we see something in Christ that is profoundly and prototypically admirable. In fact, back just a couple of chapters before uh, this one, in chapter 2, The Apostle Paul says this, and he's speaking about Jesus, and and he, and he has this passage in mind when he uses this word admirable. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, unlike absurdism that produces cynicism that says everyone does stuff just out of selfish ambition. Paul says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Why? Why? He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, and here it is, here's why, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you see, that's undoubtedly what Paul has in mind when he uses this, world, this word, admirable. He says that we see in Jesus something that is profoundly admirable, that refutes the idea of absurdism and cynicism. Anyone see the royal wedding yesterday? Anybody watch it? I did not. I didn't care. Mm. But if you did, great. The pastor at the wedding, he was an Episcopal bishop. His name was Michael Curry, and I know this only because I read the sermon. His sermon was surprisingly evangelical. And here's what he said in his sermon. He said, Jesus did not get an honorary doctorate for dying. He wasn't getting anything out of it. He gave up his life. He sacrificed his life for the good of others, for the well-being of the world, for us. And he said, that's what love is. And that refutes the idea of cynicism and absurdism. And may I add, that is exactly what admirable looks like. Now, look, I know that some of you are scared to give up your cynicism this morning because you think that if you only focus on things that are admirable, you think to yourself, well, that'll leave me vulnerable. I'll get hurt again. I'll get taken advantage of. And you think to yourself, well, it would be naive to give up my cynicism and just look at everybody and say, well, you know, just to look at the things that are admirable. And so you keep looking for things to reinforce your cynicism because, and hear me on this, your cynicism is your savior. Not Jesus. It's your cynicism that is your Savior. And so you rehearse over and over and over how you've been hurt, how people have taken advantage of you, how you got taken advantage of by someone. So, and you, you rehearse this so you will never let your guard down again. And so your anxiety, guess what? Your anxiety stays with you because that's the result of cynicism. But if you understand the gospel... You don't have to be naive, and yet you don't have to be cynical either because the, the gospel gives you a way to think about life that is both utterly realistic and profoundly hopeful at the same time because on the one hand, the cross reminds you that Christ had to die for broken and self-centered people like you and me. We're sinners. Sin is in the world. That's the brokenness of humanity. So you know that naivete and Pollyannaism, or their foolishness. You're not going to walk around the world and naively think, well, everything's going to be okay. Everything in life is going to be a blessing. Everybody's going to do the right thing. You know that's not true. You don't believe in pat answers because you understand that Christ died on the cross. You know that this world and the people in it are broken. But on the other hand, because of the resurrection of Jesus, When you do get hurt or when you do get taken advantage of or when life doesn't meet all of your expectations, you don't have to end up cynical because you know that there is a life beyond this one where all of your wounds and all of the hurts and all of the times that you've been taken advantage of, all of that will be healed. And you know that there is meaning to this life even in your suffering. And so you do not despair. You look to Jesus, not to your cynicism, to sustain you, and to protect you. Because of that, you can live hopefully and peacefully, knowing that whatever comes your way, you can trust the God who so loved you and the world that he sent his only son to do something profoundly admirable, to die selflessly for you and for the world. And if you think about it, And if you think that through, that brings a peace to the center of your life that cynicism, as your Savior, can never bring. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, this morning we, we worship you. We worship you because of the utter selflessness that you demonstrated on the cross. And the fact that in that utter selflessness, we find hope. That there are things in the world that are admirable. That cynicism doesn't have to ru- to rule the day. That the philosophy of absurdism isn't the philosophy under which we have to live. That you offer us by faith in your death on the cross and your resurrection. You offer us hope and meaning for this life and for the next. And so we thank you for that. Lord, to the extent that we have been impacted by this sinister philosophy of absurdism, and to the extent that we look at life through these cynical eyes, Lord, would you free us from that? Would you free us from that? And would you let us begin to focus and the things that are admirable, and the people that demonstrate even a small portion of the selflessness, selflessness that you have demonstrated on the cross. But Lord, as we do that, would you increasingly help us to experience peace? It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship you